0: just have to select got it it's telling you it's being recorded and uh the you know uh, so nobody will see a recording of you if you talk they might hear a recording of you talking but uh that's all okay so good evening everybody welcome back to another class on beyond right the values that shape judaism's civic code And uh, last week we had a deep dive into how important Judaism's civil code is and how it can make such a big difference in our lives. And we discussed the topic of rights versus doing what's right. And this week we have another exciting um, discussion, except this time it will be about an entirely different topic. Somebody asked at the end of last week, um, how does all this play when it comes to uh, repentance and forgiveness? And that is exactly what today's class is going to be about. We're going to discover in the first half Judaism's view on repentance and based on Judaism's values of repentance that creates the civil code that uh, you will find some astonishing laws and fascinating laws and you know the more fascinating or radical the better uh, because you're not coming here to just hear confirmation of what you know already hopefully you're coming here to hear something new so just as last week after we had the value of that general value, that idea of um, we want to do what's right. And so it's not about my property or your property. It's about uh, if, if there's no downside to me, I should, I should allow you to use it. Similarly this week, once we discover the values of repentance and Judaism, we will have a fascinating, a a different outlook on um, a different outlook on repentance and how we would view uh previous sinners i know this creates a big um, discussion in jewish circles i remember there was a holocaust survivor who was going around a couple of years ago i forget her name and she was going around and, and trying to meet with the former nazis and forgiving them that was her message to the world you know forgiveness no matter what happens and uh, as you can imagine, that creates a big storm and a big issue. How can you go around and, 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 and forgive Nazis? But who, and and who, how do you even have the place to do such a thing and the audacity to do such a thing? So it's a fascinating topic. And and really, in today's topic, I don't think we're going to try and. Uh, oh, well, whoops, one second. We're not going to try and <laughs> tackle the big, horrible people in the world, okay? You're going to ask me questions like what about Hitler? What about Stalin? Uh, let, let's bring these topics more close to home. So we're going to start with a video of somebody who wasn't an actual Nazi, but somebody who was close to it in today's day and age, his story. And uh, this will be the opening of today's class, watching this person's story and how would you think and how would you deal with this story today? So let's go for it. <laughs>
1: there's a trend trend underway in parts of europe a revival of right-wing extremism that's brought with it racism intolerance and even violence one man caught up in the swirl of controversy is a hungarian politician named Csánad Segedi. for years he was a leader in the movement with anti-semitic leanings that is until he came up against his own past
2: i am a survivor he is a
1: creator of the Nazi. On a cold December night in Montreal, Jewish residents gathered to hear a visitor from Europe give a talk. He created an atmosphere in Budapest that people are afraid to go on the street. But not everyone is in a welcoming mood. We are not embracing
2: it. I came over here to talk to him face to face.
1: One after another, audience members stand up voicing their displeasure
2: you can for give but
1: you never can never forget the controversial guest is this man chonad segedy a hungarian politician
3: isen nagyon sok minden van az életemben amit ha visszanézek akkor 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 azt kell mondani nem teljesen csilekettem de az nem az én életem lenne
1: segedy was here to talk about that life but he never did give his speech. Instead, Segedi was ordered deported from Canada, taken to the airport and escorted onto a plane back to Hungary by immigration officials. Rabbi Boruch Oberlander accompanied Segeti to Canada. Were you expecting this level of anger tonight? People were standing up and shouting.
3: They were really angry and I don't blame them. I don't blame them.
1: There is good reason not to blame them. Until recently, Segedi was the second in command of Hungary's Jobbik party, known for its extreme right-wing views. Peter Kreko is a Hungarian political analyst. In 2006, we could see the rise of Jobbik party, which is an anti-establishment, anti-Semitic, anti-Gypsy, anti-gay party with a quite harsh rhetoric. They are quite outspoken against the Jews and against the Roma. They sometimes call the Roma uh, criminals and parasites. Jobik is just part of a far right wing movement sweeping Europe. Marches, protests and political parties blaming economic and social problems on familiar scapegoats, immigrants, Roma gypsies and Jews. Just over 10 years ago, the political party Jobik was founded by a group of right-wing university students. Chonad Segedi was one of them.
3: Yehudali, gondolkozású fiatalok voltunk, és uh, úgy gondoltuk, hogy uh, előbb utol meg kell egy olyan fiatalos, modern, uh, radikális yehudali pártot.
1: But Segedi did didn't stop at joining the right-wing party. He took things a step further, forming a civilian militia called the Hungarian Guard. For Hungary's Jewish community, the Guard conjured up terrifying memories of fascists during the Second World War. Defiance. The escalating right wing movement sparked a fire of racism in the country. Minority groups are feeling under attack. Hungary's Jewish community is one of them. Meanwhile, in 2010, Jobbik won a third of the seats in Hungary's parliament. But Jobbik and one of its members were about to receive a comeuppance. ad Segedi. One of the most highly placed politicians of the right-wing party was outed as being Jewish. It was a shock to everyone, including Segedi himself.
3: It's
1: discovered his Jewish grandmother survived Auschwitz, where most of her family died. After the war, she hid her Jewish identity. In 2012, Yabik expelled Segedy, alleging he'd engaged in corruption. But Segedy says the real reason the party let him go was because of his Jewish heritage. The tables had turned, and so it seemed had the worm. Segedy reached out to this orthodox synagogue in Budapest and asked to meet the rabbi. Rabbi Baruch Oberlander. What did he say to you when he first met you?
3: Like he was just waiting for us to give him direction and help him.
1: Had you heard of Chad Segedi before you met him?
3: Oh sure, he was, a, he, was a fam- he was a famous name, or called infamous, infamous name. What did you think of him? Well, I, I thought of him about a racist. Still,
1: Oberlander's synagogue welcomed Segedi. One of the most powerful members of a right-wing party, known for its racist views, was suddenly very uncomfortable in his own skin.
3: Today,
1: he is an observant and repentant orthodox Jew, and he's taking his story of discovery, guilt, and redemption on a world tour. But when Szegedi was invited to speak in Montreal, many Jews and Holocaust survivors weren't in the mood to forgive and forget. Surely there was one moment above all else that you would like to take back.
3: In the
1: end, he could only speak to them
3: in a video. Pozár kell tennem azt is, mert beismerem, hogy nagyon sok bűnöm van. Ezért értem meg Önöket, akik nem erülnek annak, hogy itt vagyok, de ezeket a bűnöket én megpróbálom jóvá tenni.
0: So here's
2: the question.
0: Here's a question for you. You're not hearing me twice, right? Hope not. Um, Would you be open to forgiving such a person based on Jewish values and based on what you know about Judaism? Would you ever accept such a person put in the chat? And then the second question would be, uh, what would such a person have to do to receive forgiveness? You can answer one of the two if you want. So this is uh, a question. Would you be open to ever accepting somebody like that? Offering them forgiveness and what would forgiveness look like? What would they have to do? And I'd really ask a third question but I don't wanna a- ask too many questions. Um, somebody wrote, not, not for me to forgive. Um, in today's cancel culture, how likely do you think you would be to be forgiven? <laughs> you know, in uh, in today's culture, that's kind of where we're at, um, where we're, we're very unforgiving society. Uh, someone says, Yes, if he does proper to show it, not for me to forgive. Uh, it's interesting. He, he never actually did anything wrong, um, but, you know, not for you to forgive. But, you know, if he walked, walked into your community, wanted to be a, when I say never did anything wrong, he never killed anybody, I guess that's what I mean. But putting that aside, if you would walk into, let's say, Chabada of Pernos County, uh, would you be okay if he got an aliyah, let's say. Okay, so especially as he's taking a story to the masses, which is going to make other anti-Semites think more critically about their views. Okay, interesting. So getting a lot of interesting feedback. I would, I would also say uh, in today's society, um, we're very unforgiving society. And we will learn that Judaism is kind of the opposite extreme where we're very, very forgiving. Yes, if he does the proper teshuvah. All right, so all, all very good stuff. Uh, I'll wait another 30 seconds. And um, while I do that, yes, Don?
2: No, no, I I don't have that much forgiveness. I'm sorry. What Uh, that does is that it would encourage somebody else who uh, has this thing. And then, oh, well, I can be forgiven it. It reminds me of our neighbors who sin and sin and sin. And then go to confession on Sunday, get forgiven and do the same damn thing on Monday. Right, right. I may not be very... Charitable about that, and I apologize <laughs> if I offend
0: anyone. No worries, no, no worries. Don't. No, I don't. So okay, okay, I hear it. There's always a lot of different perspectives. Um, ultimately, forgiveness. There, there's two elements of forgiveness, which we're going to discuss. There's, of course, God forgiving and us forgiving. Um, okay, appreciate all the perspectives. Let us take a look at this text over here. This is from Maimonides about the shoe about repentance. So Maimonides says like this. And um, just one second. Okay, that's what Maimonides says. Text number two Teshuvah atones for all sins, even if one was wicked their entire life and did Teshuvah at the last moment. Their wickedness is no longer held against them. This is the meaning of the verse A wicked person will not stumble due to their wickedness on the day they do Teshuvah for it. So this is quite a sweeping statement. And, and again, Maimonides is basing it on Ezekiel, but a couple of things you can see there. He says, first of all, Teshuvah can atone for everything. He says for all, all sins. There are no sins that are excluded. That's a pretty sweeping statement. His second sweeping statement, it seems... That uh, it's for everybody, as you can see from the verse, a wicked person will not stumble due to their wickedness on the day they do teshuva for it. Teshuva is available for everyone. And finally, it mentions how teshuva is available even at the last moment. So this is pretty, pretty radical stuff to say that teshuva. Oh, where's my mouse? Lost my mouse, so there it is. This is pretty radical stuff to say that Teshuvah applies um for all sins everything teshuva applies even at the last moment for everyone and uh at any moment whoops my mouse is uh okay so based on this of course we would have to say that judaism would forgive anybody now again you can hit me with hard-hitting questions what about bernie madoff stalin and other terrible people, but this is the text as it is. It implies that Teshuvah is available for everybody. In fact, there's a story in the Talmud about a man called Rabbi Eliezer ben Durdaya, uh, and he's called Rabbi we'll moment why. and it says that he had sinned with every single harlot in the world. And uh, I guess you'd have to imagine the known world, of course. And at the end of his life, something happened and he started crying and crying and crying. He had terrible remorse and he died crying. And the rabbis at that time said, there are some people who can acquire the world to come in even one moment. And so there we could see, even when you're on your deathbed, uh, you can gain atonement, which is pretty, pretty crazy when you think about it. Imagine somebody sinned their entire life. They're on their deathbed and they have remorse. Suddenly they have remorse and suddenly they are forgiven for everything they've done throughout their life. It's, it's a pretty radical statement and uh, it takes wrapping our head around, but I would, I would, I would put it like this. I would say like this. Teshuva is something that is godly repentance, at least from gods. end. obviously we'll discuss in a moment, if you've stolen from somebody, how you have to make that make up for that, but let's just Go with spiritual sins only. It is a godly thing, and God is infinite, and God has the capacity to forgive. And so, therefore, even if somebody has sinned their entire life, um, if they do a proper Teshuvah, proper repentance, God has the capacity to forgive them. God is not limited. Um a deeper idea here is really the idea of Teshuva repentance is that you are a changed person. And therefore, it doesn't make a difference whether you're on your deathbed or you have another 50 years. If God can see that you're a changed person and had you had more life, you wouldn't go back to those original sins, then that is considered a proper repentance. Because really the essence of repentance is saying you will not return to those things that you had done before. And in fact, we're going to explore, these are the five steps of repentance. There are five steps of repentance. And so let's explore the five steps of repentance right now. Because again, I'm telling you that anybody can repent, anybody can get a second chance, well, what are the qualifications? Um, no, they're just throwing here on the board that you should know that uh, uh, that repentance is available for everybody, even for repentance between people. Um, let me just skip these slides over here. Uh, for everyone, anytime. Okay. Let's just take a look at this. Okay, so what are the five steps, what are the five things you need to do in order to gain repentance? And I want to skip that video okay the five steps of the Shuba are number one resolution you need to have a resolution that you will not re-offend that is the first step of any type of repentance you have to agree to not do the same thing again so let's take a case of a robber a robber who is stealing uh you know uh he asked to take a resolution not to steal. Again, they tell the story of the city gone of the city a thief who came to the rabbi before Yom Kippur and said, Rabbi, I've been stealing all year and I would like to gain some repentance. So the rabbi told him, sure, he gave him a five-step plan. Exactly, how to gain his repentance and he left the house. Well, a couple hours later, the rabbi was looking, trying to figure out the time when he should eat his first meal before Yom Kippur and he notices his watch is missing and the only person that had been in his house was the robber. So he calls the robber back, the town thief, the gun back. And he says, did you by any chance take my watch? He says, yes, I stole your watch. He says, you idiot, you came here to ask me forgiveness for stealing. And here you steal my watch. He says, listen, Rabbi, one thing, teshuva is teshuva, and business is business. You know, I still got to make a living. So obviously such a person has not actually done any teshuva. But the first step of any level of teshuva is a resolution that you will not do the same thing. Step number two is... Remorse, you need to have remorse. So again, not only deciding that you will not do it again, but you have to feel bad over what you've done. You have to feel bad over um, the acts and, and why they're wrong. And you can say remorse is plays into the resolution, although it doesn't have to. All right, then the next step is you have to do restitution. If you stole something, you have to make sure to pay it back. So you stole $100, you have to pay back the $100. Then there is appeasement of the victim. So many times, in addition to physical loss, there is emotional damage as well, or maybe there's embarrassment, and you have to make that other person whole. And the final step of teshuva is something we do on Yom Kippur a lot. It's called verbal confession. You have to confess to God verbally all of your sins bring it express it out in the open tell god exactly everything that you have done so these are the five steps of teshuvah. and again our focus today is not going to be so much on teshuvah and repentance that's something we discussed in uh crime or consequence but what we do want to say is judaism's what we are trying to present here is how important teshuva is in judaism repentance If you look in the books of the prophets, repentance is discussed so often. God talks about our sins. He also talks about repentance. And on top of that, as we quoted before, we have to know that in Judaism, repentance is available for anybody and everyone. However, we just presented, we gave a caveat to that. You shouldn't think that repentance is easy. Repentance is difficult. However, God wants everybody to repent. In fact, they're the greatest sinner of all times, for those who know, was Yeravam ben Nevat. He was the king who was the first breakaway kingdom of the Jewish kingdom, and he made many Jews serve idols. And the Talmud tells us that God held onto his coat and begged him to repent. Even though God had told him his repentance would never work, God still begged him to repent. That just shows you how much Judaism values repentance. And on top of this, Judaism actually holds people who repent in a very, very high esteem. There's a a wonderful line that is said in uh, Talmud. And so we're going to read this line over here just to tell you how powerful repentance is in Judaism. Let's move down here. Uh, Oh, I got to zoom in. Okay. Sorry about that. So it says like this on the right-hand side. And, uh, okay, it says in the text, in the place where returnees stand, even completely righteous people cannot stand and So What that's saying is, is that people who repent, people who return are even greater than people who are righteous their entire life. So that means you can live a righteous life and some guy like this guy we showed in the video does repentance and he's better than you. It sounds pretty uh, uh, pretty radical to me, if you ask me. So why is that? So why is it that repentance can make you even greater than someone who... Um, why? How is it that repentance can make you even greater than someone who has been uh, pure their entire life? So there's a couple of reasons. We're going to share them up here on the screen. Um, if... It wants to load, of course. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I don't know why the computer is so slow today, but uh, everything has,
3: uh, just one second. Uh, okay.
0: Okay, so here are the reasons why. Reason number one, Maybe I think next time I'm going to ditch the PowerPoint because it's, it's not you know, not working that great. Reason number one is repentance adds more character. What that means is is sometimes when something is broken and restored, it can be better than new. You know, Obviously, new is, is the best, but sometimes you take something and you, and you fix it, it's better than new. Um, some say, well, no, let's not go with physics, but let's say marriages or relationships, sometimes they can get better, when they're repaired. Number two is there's a stronger commitment. When someone was stuck in a bad place and they have to break out of that, they have a stronger commitment to do the right thing because they know what life was like on the other side. And therefore their commitment to doing the right thing is that much greater. And the final reason that we want to share over here Actually, no, we're not going to do a third one. Okay, so regardless, again, today's class is not so much about that because we're, we're mostly interested in the civil code. But what we are trying to present here, again, is in Judaism, how powerful teshuva is, how important of a value it is. We said, number one, teshuva is available to everyone at every time and um, for any type of sin. We discussed how someone can do teshuva, the five steps, and we discussed when someone does teshuva properly, they stand on a greater level than somebody who has been righteous their entire life. And in fact, let's take this a step further. The Altar Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe says in the Tanya, not Netanya, the, the Kotitori says that in fact, one can say that the purpose of creation was so that um, people can repent whole reason your soul came down to this body is so that you can repent let's take a look over here in other words what he says is like this you your soul was pure in heaven so what's the purpose of being born and he says the purpose of being born is so that we can repent so let's read why did our soul descend into this physical world if the ultimate goal is to return to heaven where it enjoyed the radiance of god's presence in other words he's asking like this why do you need to come down to this earth just to go back to God? You were with God before you left. Prior to the soul's descent, it was also in heaven and enjoyed the radiance of God's presence. The true answer to this lies in the sages teaching. A single moment of repentance and good deeds in this world is greater than all the world to come. Similarly, our sages taught that in place where attorneys stand, even completely righteous people cannot stand. And, uh... Oh, I forgot that go one. side sorry and uh, i'm sorry about this text Ah, uh, whatever okay i'm just gonna say the rest of it outside because it's not working okay the end of the text is like this before the soul's descent into the body it was undoubtedly perfectly righteous but as a result of its descent it can experience teshuva and rise to a height that is superior to that of the righteous so what he's saying is is that the soul was definitely righteous. What's the point of coming down to this earth? To do teshuva, to return to God. And through our repentance and return to God, we become higher than we were before. When you think about it, God is not stupid. He knows when he sends us to this earth that uh, we're ultimately, many of us are going to sin. I don't think anybody here in this class can say that they've never sinned. Most of us have sinned at some point in our lives. So why is God sending this perfect soul down to this earth just to become perfect again? No, it's, it's for the gain of repentance. In other words, repentance is the whole purpose of life when you think about it. Now, as we look at terrible sinners and we say, ah, they're so bad, but we also all sin in our lives. We also do things sometimes in our lives that are not that great. And in fact, those mistakes that we make are the reason we were born to begin with. We were born so that we can make mistakes and overcome our flaws, overcome our issues, overcome our problems. That is the reason why we were in fact created. That's why repentance takes such a powerful place in Judaism. This was God's purpose in creating the world. There's a line we say in the, uh, in the high holidays. In Yom Kippur, we say, you extend a hand to transgressors, to transgressors. Your right hand stretches forth to receive the penitence. God doesn't just suffice with opening the door for Teshuvah. He actively stretches out his hand. He is trying to bring us in. Why? Because based on what we said right now, because this is really the entire purpose of creation is uh, repentance. And so based on this, um, preface you will understand why Jewish law will be what it is because of the great value we have of repentance and how important we view repentance Jewish law will go a little you might say Meshuggah a little radical in its views on um, facilitating repentance any questions or comments and I'm open for all of them You can go in the chat or you can unmute. Anybody?
2: For um, a Canadian congregation that wasn't interested in having the um, sort of reformed Hungarian politician, would like sort of a rabbinical court say like the community has sort of like collectively sinned for not like accepting him?
0: So that's a great question. You want to know the community that didn't accept John Segeti, um, Have they sinned by not accepting his repentance? Um, I would say not because they, you know, he was in the beginning of his journey. A, They, they have the right to question. And in, additionally, you don't have to forgive right away. Uh, repentance is, and, and forgiveness is not automatic And uh, as you can imagine, if you have somebody like that who comes to your door, um, especially if you don't really know them, uh, you're going to question their motives. Um, I'd say a more fascinating case study would be the community where he lived in, in Hungary. And I understand that even over there, he had trouble being accepted by the community, even though the community could see him. Um, There is a concept in Jewish law that um, if someone sinned and they're trying to make it up with you, and they've come to you three times at that point, uh, you, by not forgiving, is considered sinning. But um, you have to be able to get to that point. Um, So good question. Okay. Any other questions? No? Yes? No, maybe so? Okay. So I want to present the next section. By first putting it like this, we see how much God values repentance and how much repentance and return he gives us. Think about it. Uh, The Rebbe used to point out, he says, you know, you you pray three times a day and and in each of the prayers you ask God to forgive you. You know, what's going on here? That means that, you know, you sin in between each time and it's true, we do. And uh, it it says in the prayers, we call prayers, God is Rav Lesloach. God is, has a lot of forgiveness. What that means is that generally with human beings, if someone's, you know, someone, uh, well, there's there's that, uh, you know, let's go with the joke. There's the story of the the guy who walks into a a bar and he asks the bartender, can I please get a drink of water? I said this in one of my last courses, can I please get it? Sorry, a, a cup of whiskey. So the bartender gives him cups of whiskey and the, 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 the customer takes a cup of whiskey, throws it in the bartender's face. Bartender kicks him out. He walks in the next day. He asks the bartender, can I please get a cup of whiskey? So the bartender says, Sean, um, oh, no, not you. I'm not giving you. He says, listen, I it was a mistake yesterday. I had a really agitated day. I won't do it again. So the bartender gives him a cup of whiskey. He throws it right in the guy's face. And uh, the bartender says, get out and I want to see you again. A year later, the customer comes in he comes to the bar. and says, bartender, can I please get a cup of whiskey? And the bartender says, no, 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 I remember you. My eyes are still burning. He says, listen, I'm a changed man. I've been to therapy for a year. I can show you my bills. Please just give me a cup of whiskey. So he gives him a cup of whiskey. And of course, the customer throws the cup of whiskey in his face. As he says, with his eyes burning, he turns to God. and says, I don't understand. You said you went to therapy for a year. He says, yeah, I went to therapy. Tell now, I felt bad about it. Now I don't feel bad about it anymore. Okay. So what, what am I, why am I bringing up the story? The point of the story really is if somebody does something to you once, twice, three times, eventually you're going to lose patience and, and, and he's going to ask you forgiveness. You're not going to forgive him. You know, there comes a point. But God, we say we could send him once, twice, every year, Yom Kippur, we come to him. And there's sometimes the same sense and there's a variation of it. And uh, God forgives us. And so we have to think about that. Think about how much God is willing to forgive us and try and pass that on to others. If we want God to show us that high level of forgiveness, we should try and show penitence uh, a high level of forgiveness, too. So what would that look like in a legal system? Uh, So obviously, you know, in the prison system, there's a lot of discussion about prison reform And uh, rehabilitative programs that are being offered, which is a a great step forward. But Judaism takes the the, uh, value of rehabilitating offenders much farther than just giving them programs of rehabilitation. Um, We will learn that in Judaism, the process, the, the teshuva, the civil code for teshuva is embedded not just for. People who are already criminals, but people who are not even yet caught as criminals. And so that's what we're going to discuss. Judaism tries to create laws that not just help current criminals rehabilitate themselves, but we also try and help criminals who are as yet unknown to help them come clean and try and help them and facilitate them to be able to do teshuva. So I'm going to say that one more time. Current laws focus mostly, and there are an exception which we'll discuss in the end, but current laws mostly focus on people who have already committed crimes, already caught, already in jail. How can we create a program, you know, prison reform and whatnot to be able to allow them to reintegrate into society? Jewish law has a fascinating section of laws which not just help caught criminals, but try and facilitate people who are as yet uncaught and try and help make them open up the door for Teshuvah, open up the door for them to repent and return. And in order to do that, we're going to need to discover a case study. So let's take a case study. And if you have the student book, it's on page 47. And uh, let's let me, uh, flip the side of it here. All right, so this is the story. And this is a complicated story. And, and really, I could almost say it's uh, three stories in one. So let's take a look here. All right. Mark was a career criminal with a lengthy history of robberies. One of his many victims was Jack, the owner of a New York construction company. Mark successfully stole a range of construction materials from Jack's business. Among the stolen items, there was an expensive central air conditioning system and a kitchen cabinet set. After lifting them, uh, I guess it's a way of saying stealing them from Jack's property. Mark assembled them in his own home. After decades of crime, Mark's dormant conscience began to flicker to life. Eventually, he resolved to turn over a new leaf, abandon his life of crime, and pursue an honest job. Mark came clean about his thefts and set about making restitution for them. He tracked down Jack, who had by then retired to his new home in Los Angeles, explaining that. Oh, I'm uh, zooming as opposed to going down, okay. Uh, explaining the circumstances. Mark wished to provide reimbursement, but Jack insisted that the actual stolen items be returned to him, asserting that it was his right to receive their physical return and to not to make do with monetary substitutions. Jack's demand raises a series of questions. So again, you have this guy who's one of the people he stole from was a general contractor. He stole an AC system and kitchen cabinets. He tracks many years later, he makes repentance and he asks, um, he asks Jack, can I repent? And and Jack says, sure, but you got to return to me the AC system and the kitchen cabinets. See somebody's raising their hand. You have a comment question?
4: Yes. Okay. it seems to me that Jack is, being, is holding a grudge against Mark because why he doesn't accept the re- reimbursement, why he needs the old air conditioning system. Um, I mean, I understand if, it, if something is like a, something that has sentimental value or, or like the price is going to go up over time or something like that. But in right. this case, why is he going to deal with a, an old air conditioning system?
0: Right. Oh. It's, so that's why I, I didn't actually like the case fully. Um, I would say, well, the AC system brings up some interesting questions. Why would he want Why would he want the old AC system? Well, who cares why? Does he have a right to have it back? Would be question number one. As far as the kitchen cabinets, I would say, what if they weren't kitchen cabinets? What if they were IKEA bookcases that he put together? I don't know. It's a good question. Um, and, that, and that's one of the questions we're going to explore right now. So basically you're saying he's, Jack sounds pretty cruel, right?
4: I, th- I think that he's being difficult. And also uh, this guy, Mark, he, he was doing something wrong all his life. And then he he just recently just started to, you know, come clean and, and do the right thing. And, and it looks like he, he, Jack is making it difficult for him to do teshuvah. So yeah.
0: He is making it difficult for him. That's correct. But what would you say would be the law? You know, if, if the system is still extant, what would you think the law should be?
4: Uh, I think that...
0: Does that on it?
4: I think that it depends on the case. But of course, a law is a law. It doesn't really necessarily depend on the case. But in in this case, I think that Mark... Uh, that jack should just take the money um because there's no reason there really there's no reason for him to just get that old system back um and but about his right well maybe maybe he he has a right to have his um uh, his original item back but is it the the right thing to do if uh-huh. you know in this case so you know
0: Good, good, good. So, you're going back from rights to doing what's right. Yep, harkens back to last week's discussion. Someone else here though quotes an eye for an eye. Uh, do you mean by that that we should be ruthless, or do you mean by that that uh, he should just pay back another AC system? I'm going to throw up. The I
2: mean, four- Wasn't there um, last week or the week uh, in the last lesson a uh, situation where he somebody stole the wood? And then they made the wood into something. So then I think the, a, the law was week. he had to compensate them for the wood. But that, then the wood. Gonna be, that's going
0: to be this week. That's this week.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, but you said something about it like in the previous. And so I would think if it's kitchen cabinets and an AC unit that's already installed, um, I, you know, assuming it's already installed, then it's. I, I would think they would have to give him the money and not tear everything out. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm.
0: Someone says also compensation for not having the AC all those years.
2: Yeah, uh, that's uh, true.
0: That's a good question. Um, okay. Well, let's, well, it was a contracting business. So the AC system, he would have sold it, the money that he would have had many, many years ago. Um, okay, let's take a look at, the, at, at our four questions that we have up here. Should Mark be allowed to keep the goods and reimburse Jack for their value? That's question number one. Question number two or three, whatever you want to call it. Is Mark entitled to some compensation for increased value? So what that means is, is let's say, you know, the air conditioning probably loses value as does the, um, as does the kitchen cabinets once they're installed. But let's say he stole IKEA bookcases and he's put them together. Now, those IKEA bookcases are worth more money. So, if Mark does have to be forced to return those bookcases, um, again, when he stole them, they were worth $100. Now they're worth $150. Can Mark be entitled to some compensation for the increased value? It sounds a little crazy, right? But, uh, you know, that, that this stealer, the robber, would make money off of it. But it's, it's possible. Let's give you a different example. May, let's say he stole a Tesla. And he upgraded the Tesla. He paid for the upgrades. You know, when you buy Teslas, there's like packages, electronic packages. So he paid for higher packages and now the Tesla is worth more money. And he, So he's going to return you your Tesla. Does he get back the money that he invested? The next question would be whose responsibility is to pay the transportation bill? So let's say they live now in different cities. Uh, who would have to pay that? The robber or the person that was robbed from? And finally, should the fact that Mark confessed affect his responsibility? So here are the questions, and so the first thing we want to lay out is talking about rights versus what's right. Now I don't know what the rule is in secular law; I can't tell you. But technical biblical law would tell us that the, a stolen good has to be returned. Let's take a look here. This is text number six. This is biblical law. You probably have heard it. It says it in the Torah. We say it a couple of times. The exela all This is clear in the Torah. A thief is obligated to return the exact object that he stole. As the verse states, they must return the object that they have stolen. This is in Leviticus. Leviticus 5.23 says, They have to return the stolen object. If the stolen object was lost or altered, the thief must pay its value. Even if a person stole a beam and used it in the construction of a home, scriptural law would require that the thief tear down the entire Building to return the beam to its owner because the beam itself is extant and unchanged. So, this text from Maimonides seems to imply that when you steal something, you have to return the original item. And no matter how much it might cost you tearing out the AC system, pulling the beam out of your house, imagine you stole one two by four and you built your entire house, now you have to pull off the ceiling to get the two by four. He's saying that would be the law. That would be the law that the original item has to be returned. Now, what's the logic behind returning the original item? Uh, the simple reason is that it's an ownership. But you know, you stole this item; you have to return the item as it was. And the, so long as the stolen item is intact, it belongs to the person it was stolen from. And that's really a restoration. Uh, you know, when we talk about in Judaism, you have to do a restoration to the per, to the person that you affected. Returning their original item makes sense. Imagine someone steals from me my phone, right? And uh, they want to return it, uh, you know, a similar value phone. No, I, I, I want the original, uh, you know, I, want it, I, want, I want it to return to where it was. Also, imagine the guy is a robber and he stole something, he built it into his house. Let's say he stole kitchen cabinets. And we're going to tell him, you don't have to return those kitchen cabinets. There's a logic that would say, well, this robber every single day is going to be reminded of his bad ways. He's looking at the items that were stolen all the time. Obviously, of course, if the item is not extant, you don't have to return it. But again, this is biblical law. Now this, many people did not appreciate this this, uh, um, thought process as as we saw before in the case of Mark and Jack. Many people said, well, Jack is being difficult. Just take the money. But scriptural law, this is what it says. And then you can see Maimonides there. Maimonides there says, Scriptural law would require the thief to Tear down the entire house However however, Maimonides clearly said that this is Scriptural law Comes along the rabbis and say yes There is value to returning the original object However um, However Returning the original object May not be the value system Of the Torah So let's take a look at text number 7 Rabbi Yochanan ben Gudgeda testified that there is a rabbinic enactment regarding a case of a thief that built a stolen beam into a building. The victim of the theft is only entitled to monetary compensation. This was enacted for the benefit of the penitents. Whoa, 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 whoa. So now we have to back up. What happened over here? Scripture says by right, you have to return the original object. You stole an object, you have to return it. However, the rabbis realized that uh, that may not make it very practical to live within the value system of the Torah, and that is to try and get people to return and repent. And therefore, they said, no, the, the victim of theft only has a right to monetary compensation. And this was enacted, as they said, for the benefit of the penitents. So, again, it's fascinating, but the rabbis enacted law for the benefit of the penitents. Somebody's writing over here. The legal concept is loss of use. Mark is entitled to more if there were no penalty for stealing. Then steal, use the item, and then when convenient, return it. Steal a car, drive it ten years, then give it back with no penalty. Right. Um, so, is there right? So here's the question: Is the, is there a penalty when you steal? Especially once we add in the rabbis over here that say you don't even have to return the original object if it's too difficult. So the first thing we have I want to point out is. A lot of these laws are if you are not caught, if you are deciding to return it on your own accord. The law is clear in the Torah. If you steal and you are caught, you don't come and confess, then you have to pay back double. You have to pay back everything double. So you steal the car, you get caught, you have to pay back double. All these laws that we're going to discuss going forward of Rules that were put in place to allow penitents to repent and return, they were there for people who are as yet not caught. We are trying to get them to live a life of repentance and return. And so, hopefully, that answers uh, some of the questions that may be swirling around in your head. So, again, these laws that we're discussing now, we discussed one so far, but these laws we're discussing now are all there to try and help people to repent and return and to live a proper life. Thieves who are caught, There are different laws. Any comments or questions? Or is your head spinning enough yet? (laughs) Um, So let's take a look here at text number eight. Text number eight gives the rationale behind text number seven. Why do we say that um, they do not have to uh, return the beam? It says, if we would require... Thieves to destroy their buildings for the sake of returning the actual stolen beam, they will be discouraged from doing to Shuba. So that was law number one. Law number one that was enacted was if the item that was stolen is is so embedded in the property that it's expensive to take it out, and you don't have to return the original. So if it's not embedded, you would have to return the original. So going back to our case of a car, you'd have to return the, the original car. If there's a case of uh, Ikea bookcases, you'd have to return the Ikea bookcases. Um, and now let's get to the next question, which was what if the item became worth more? Um, so for example, I gave the example of Tesla. And so here the law is, you can see the Talmud says enhancement of the actual body of the stolen item belongs to the thief. And so what that means is if the person stole the Tesla and he made the Tesla worth more money, then if it's due to his enhancement, then he would get that extra money. However, let's say for example, he stole the Tesla, didn't do anything to it, but Teslas are now worth more money because all used cars are worth more money. Well, then the robber doesn't get the benefit of that money. And obviously uh, vice versa, if you steal a car for a bunch of years and then you return it, and of course, now it's worth $10,000 less, you would have to return it. You would have to uh, you know, compensate what the car was worth when you stole it. Um, let's ask another example. Let's say you steal a bar of silver and then you form it into a beautiful piece of jewelry. So the original item is still there and one can make the argument, well, just return the silver. On the other hand, I've taken this jewelry and I've made it worth more money. Um, I would like, I would like the enhancement of the jewelry as the robber. I would like to get that money back. What would the law be? Anybody based on what we've been reading till now? Again, you stole you stole a bar of silver. You turned it into a ring. You turned it into a necklace. Turned it to jewelry, and now that silver is worth a lot more money. Well, well and you want to, and now you want to repent. You want to return it. Um, do you just return the silver, or do you get money back for it? So you say they would be able to sell it net more and only return the original value. Um, that's one way to do it. Yes, they 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 could sell it and return the original value. Another option would be to return the original silver, but the person who was stolen from would have to pay whatever the added value was given to it. So again, why would the law be like this? And the, again, the reason is we they established all of these because they wanted to make it easier for people to repent. Again, going back to the original, the Torah would say, Scriptural law would say you stole a piece of silver. I don't care how you formed it, I don't care how you changed it. The original silver is there. The Torah says, Beheshivas exhalash our you have to return the stolen item that you stole. However, the rabbis came and said, Whoa, 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 whoa. If this robber realizes that all of the silver that he stole and turned into jewelry, which is now worth a lot of money, he has to return. So say, All that money I put, it's not worth returning your repentance. The rabbi says the extra value that you've added. Anything that you stole does belong to the robber himself. Somebody asks, what if the victim is compensated by their insurance company? Um, so if the victim has been compensated by their insurance company, um, the robber should return it to the uh, original owner and the original owner should notify his insurance company and send them the money back, right? I think that would be the right thing If you if you get it back. Um, I don't think that's what happens, but, uh, uh, that, 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 that should be the law. Okay. Is anybody, is everybody, is everybody clear here? Everybody's clear. here. Yeah. Somebody wrote, yeah, right. Okay. Um, so going back to Mark and Jack, so we've clarified some of our questions. So again, our questions were, um, let's pull this up. The questions were, um, question number one was, should Mark be allowed to keep the goods and reimburse Jack for their value? And our answer right now would be yes. Why? Because Judaism values repentance and we want to make it easier for this guy who sinned, who's the career criminal to repent. Number two, three, is Mark entitled to some compensation for increased value? Well, if the items became worth more money because of something that he did, then the answer would be yes. In this case, I I can't believe, I can't imagine the AC became worth more money or that the kitchen cabinets became worth more money because they've been installed. That's why I like the better example of he stole Ikea bookcases, which may be worth more money now, or the Tesla that you stole. Now we still have question number four. Whose responsibility is it to pay the transportation bill? Now you would say, and I would say off the bat, all right, I, I can get that, you know, we can't force Jack to you know, to demand to the original items. It's too difficult. I, I can get that we can't, that, that Mark wants compensation for the money that he invested in, the, in these stolen items, but pay the transportation costs. I mean, come on, Mark should pay to ship it back to Jack. That would make a lot of sense, right? Well, what makes sense is not always what's Jewish law. Jewish law is all about living on the edge. So let's see what Jewish law says. This is text number 11. Uh, You know, just when you think things start making sense, then Jewish law comes and adds another layer to this. Uh, That's text. Is that text? Uh, All right. People that stole from others and confessed the theft are not required to pursue the owners in order to return the stolen item to them. The confessed thief may hold on to the items, notify the owner, and wait for them to come and collect it. Wow. So again, not only can the owner not force the steal the robber to return it, not only does the robber get the value that he added to the items, but he doesn't even have to go and return the objects. Now, I do want to say something. Think about it historically. Transportation, I know now is very expensive, but transportation historically was a very, very difficult thing. It's not like today where you go to the UPS store and you stick it in the mailbox and you send it back. Um, back in the day, transportation was a very, very big deal. And the rabbis, again, the working theory of the rabbis enactments is all like this. How can we make it that somebody will feel willing and able to repent and return? And the rabbis came and said, we are worried if the robber will have to pay transportation costs, they will not want to come back. So does that mean if the, if, if the owner never comes back to take it, they, uh, they get to keep it? No, they're never allowed to use that item. But at the same time, um, it, would, it could be very, very, just imagine a career criminal and he's stolen from all over the place, from every place. And th- these are the guys we're trying to target. We're trying to target these career criminals to reform their ways and, and, and to change their way of life. And so that's why the rabbis came and said that we want to make sure that it's as easy as possible for these people to return and repent okay someone has a question
4: so what if the owner never uh picks up the uh stolen item uh does that interfere with the um robert teshuvah process? So you wanna,
0: you want to know what if what if the uh person who was stolen from does not want to take the stuff back
4: yeah does that interfere with the teshuvah process of the other person
0: all right so that will be the uh the next the next uh the next step that we're going to discuss good question that will be the final uh, step of the class okay someone asks, how much do we think this particular point has changed now that we have DHL UPS given the current transportation situation it would seem that someone who doesn't take the now near trivial step of sending back goods isn't actually pursuing to in earnest that's why I gave that caveat and I, and I might I might agree that if it's not a very expensive return um, that I would say yes uh, they should return the items um, especially today where um, at the very least sending money you know you can sell the money you can PayPal the money cash app, Uh, even if you're not going to return the original object set you you know even back in the day sending money was difficult you know today sending money is so easy um, I would say at the very least to return the money okay Um, now let's get on to how the rabbis you know let let me just um, backtrack for a moment there's Uh, secular law has a similar idea to this. Secular law has a similar idea to to some of these concepts. One of them is known as uh, tax amnesty. What that means is, is if someone has been evading taxes for many, many years, um, they uh, have the opportunity to come clean with the IRS, pay all their back taxes without being subject to any Type of penalties. So again, there are uh, in many, many states. um, In 29 states, I'm reading here, in 29, in Texas, 14, in 29 states, they have something called tax amnesty, and it's actually been quite successful. Um, In fact, the states that have done it have raised a fair amount of money. Uh, New York was the most successful generating 401 million. I would also guess they raise the most money because their taxes are the highest. And therefore maybe they have a lot of people want to evade it. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. New York and New Jersey are some of the biggest other big ones are California, Illinois, Massachusetts, all of them, of course, being uh, places that are very expensive. And so you have a lot of people who might try and evade taxes. However, the IRS's purpose in that program had nothing to do with rehabilitation of Uh, the penitents and it had everything to do with the IRS wanting to get more money. So they made these laws and they said, look, if you come back, we won't hit you with penalties. Then you can return all the money that you still owe us all the back taxes. So it's just a gamble on their part, you know, instead of trying to catch the people to to get the money, it had nothing to do with the penitents. The rabbis enactments are all about the penitents. That's really the big difference. Secular laws focus is basically we have these laws. You better follow these laws. And if you fall out of line, we will punish you severely. As we know, the legal system is a very unforgiving system. Um, Jewish law is very much not like that. And uh, we will try in any which way to get people to come clean. I know even even in the legal system today where there's this whole thing, they try and get people to uh, admit to their uh, crimes the, the purpose of the legal system doing that has nothing to do with trying to help penitents. The whole reason is because they want to save money uh, on the judges and the court cases and they don't want to deal with it. So getting people to confess and to uh, plea, all the plea bargains, that's really the motivation behind it. It, it has nothing to do with the penitents. Judaism, uh, we want to encourage people to repent and return of their own accord. That's really um, a big deal. But now let's get to a final enactment that the sages made. And um, you know, until now, the enactments the sage has made, which was uh, you know not having to pull the beam out of the house, being able to get the value out of what you've enhanced, and uh, not having to ship back the items, these are very specific scenarios concerning the cost of return. In this following section of text number 12, we will study a very broad and far-reaching enactment. And uh, so let's take a look at this. This is text number 12. And this will be a little different than the previous um, enactments in that it's not mandatory as we will see in a moment. Uh, let's see if I'm on the right side. Okay. So here is the text. Text number 12. This is from the Talmud and it says like this. There was a incident in which a certain person sought to perform, to perform teshuva. He wanted to repent. His wife said to him, empty head, if you do teshuva repentance, even the belt you are wearing is not yours. The fellow refrained and did not do teshuva, did not do repentance. At that time, the the sages declared that if thieves wish to return what they stole, their victims should not accept it from them. If the victims nevertheless do accept from the thieves, the sages are displeased with their conduct. And um, that's a very broad enactment. And it calls on the victims of theft to forgo compensation for their stolen items in order to make it easier for the thieves to do Teshuvah. However, there are a number of caveats to this enactment because this is rather broad. So let's take a look over here. Um, oops. Caveats to the law against... All right, here are the caveats. The caveats are we're not going to read inside of text 13, but here's the bullet points. The caveats are, number one, it's only for a career thief. Number two, it's only if the thief came forward of their own volition. Number three, only if the stolen item is no longer extant. Number four, victims are only advised and not to accept, but they are not required to refuse. Number five, it is nevertheless praiseworthy for the thief to make restitution. So we actually have... Two opposite laws going on at the same time. (laughs) On the one hand, the person who was stolen from is told, don't accept it. At the same time, the robber is told, try and force them to take it. So it's a very interesting uh, push and pull. And I think really what the sages are trying to do is this, they want to make it easy psychologically for the person to repent. They want to make it easy for the person to repent and return to God. However... They realize that it's going to be difficult. And so if they say, if they start off and say, well, you know, it's, um," they said, well, you know, you don't have to return it. I think that opens the door for the people to repent. And hopefully over time, the robber, as they've gotten in a mode of repenting and returning and, and, and letting go of their ways, eventually they might come to a place where they will return the stolen items. They will push the owners to take the stolen items back but we want to make it in the beginning as easy as possible. That's kind of the way that I'm, that I'm looking at it again, because when you look at it, the sages are, you know, kind of giving a pull and a push over here. They're saying on the one hand, don't accept a stolen item at the same time, they're telling the thief, but you should push to make sure to give it. And so I think they're trying to give this message here is that we want to make it as easy as possible for someone to repent and return, but yet, um, we're cautioning them not to do it. So let's, let's, let's take this practically. Let's take this case practically. Did anybody here uh, ever hear of uh, Bernie Madoff? Anybody probably right. Yeah, you heard of Bernie Madoff? I would, I would assume so.
2: Yeah.
0: Did it, but did anybody lose money to Bernie Madoff over here?
2: Mostly Jews. Mostly Jews. Sell.
0: Yeah, yeah. He he mostly made off with Jewish money. Did anybody here personally lose money to Madoff? No. So here's the question with a guy like Madoff. And again, I, I don't know exactly. And I don't know this to be true, but let's say we had the laws of uh, repentance as the Torah laws are a lot more forgiving. You know, He claims, and I don't know if it's true, he claims that he first got into it, he first started it, you know, obviously not innocently, but he...